Welcome to the Do More Podcast, where we share strategies and tips for improving your life in every aspect. Here's your host, John Farling. All right, welcome back. Today, I have Seth Williams with RE Tipster, and we met, I believe it was probably, what, four years ago at Bigger Pockets Conference in Nashville. And I believe Seth made a post um, on, on the local directory or marketplace or whatever and said, hey, is anyone that's in attendance interested in self-storage? And I had just gotten into it and I responded. And I think there's five or six of us that that met up a couple times. And uh, Seth and I have stayed in, in touch since. Uh, we actually, Seth, I can say, formed the very first mastermind that I've ever been a part of, which was the tip of the iceberg in uh, completely changing my life. So definitely appreciate that. But want to welcome Seth Williams. And uh, I guess as we get started here, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, we'll just go through there. Go go that way. Hey, John. Yeah. Thanks for having me here. It's awesome to hang out with you a little bit and talk about whatever we talk about here. But um, yeah, so oh, should I just start with like a uh, my story of how I got into real estate or something or well you were or? you were in uh banking before, correct? Yeah. Before was, you became an entrepreneur. Yep. Yeah. So after college, I graduated in two thousand six and then I got into banking and I was in that for a few years before I discovered the land business. Um after kind of struggling and failing at house flipping and rental properties and that kind of thing, land was the first thing that clicked and I understood it and I, you know, found pretty early success at it. So I stuck to that for I mean, really till today, really. Um, and it's been a great business. What what made you, so you were in banking, I know a little bit because we've talked about that and you've obviously had some good experiences with that because you got, you know, just experience going through banking, right? Oh, and yeah. now that you're in the real estate investing world, like that helps. So what, mm-hmm. what first made you want to leave a nine to five and become an entrepreneur? Yeah. Well, yeah, so I didn't really... Um, I never really wanted a job per se. Like when I was in college, it was just like, I got to do something. I don't really, I'm not, I don't have this fire to like pursue some career, but I got to figure something out. Like I can't just not do anything. And, uh, I had worked for Pepsi all during college. It was not that great of a job. It was really hard, long hours, just very grueling and taxing in many different ways. And I was like, I can't do this. Like, this is not going to work for my career. And uh, my dad mentioned banking to me. I was like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. It's like a eight to five job and weekends off and it pays pretty well. And, you know, I can do that. So I went that direction and it did, did end up being a really interesting career. And it was, I didn't realize this at the time, but it ended up being really helpful in the real estate space too, because I was specifically in commercial real estate banking. We did SBA 504 loans exclusively. That was all we did. So we've, I, you know, I got to work with a lot of local bankers and we partnered with them to do these uh, deals with borrowers that were usually startups or just, you know, I don't want to say higher risk, but higher risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I met a lot of people, got to talk with a lot of businesses and understand the underwriting process and just how real estate lending works in general. Like, what is a lien? You know, what is a deed? What is a mortgage? How does this recording process work? Like, how long does it take to do this? What are the obstacles when you're trying to get a loan, just a lot of this stuff that you end up learning. And, uh, it was super helpful, um, in any area of real estate, but it's probably most helpful over the past couple of years as I've gotten into self-storage because I actually had to uh, become a borrower like that for the first time. So like mm-hmm. I got to see the other side of the table, like what does the borrower have to go through? And I kind of knew what to expect and what the problems were going to be. And, um, but yeah, I was just, it was very helpful to have that banking experience when I got there. Sure. So you got in the land. Describe, because I I understand it, but when someone says I'm in land, what does that what yeah. does that mean? Yeah, I mean it. It's a good question because it can mean a lot of different things. Um, like the word land investing is a very umbrella term that can go a lot of different directions. But for me, uh, the strategy I discovered was this idea of uh, buying vacant land, just you know, relatively smaller residential lots and paying a very, very, very low price for them. Like mm-hmm. back when I started in 2009, I would regularly buy properties free and clear for about 10 to 30% of their market value. And keep in mind, this was at the height of the uh, recession, 
And a lot of this was in Michigan. So it was like the worst of the worst times and places to be doing this. Like nobody wanted land in Michigan, but I was able to buy a property super cheap. And even in Michigan it, at that time, I was able to, you know, put them up for sale and sell them within two to three months, maybe a little bit longer than mm -hmm. that. And I would sell them for anywhere from like 50 to 80% of market value. So at, at, at least I was doubling my money on these things and I had no loans when I bought them. So I wasn't like making payments. I didn't have bank limitations or anything like that. I could just use the cash in my bank account. And like to give you an idea for how much I would have to pay for these things. My first deal, I paid 331 bucks for, wow. and then I would sell it for like, you know, a couple thousand bucks, like a couple weeks later, that kind of thing. That'd how much, how much land is that? Uh, that first deal was a half acre. Okay. So, so a mean, residential lot. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, and for me, this was perfect because I'm, I've always been pretty risk averse. Like I just get scared easily by this kind of stuff. And, uh, it was very, uh, low risk because mm -hmm. even if I made a horrible decision and bought the wrong thing and at least lose 331 bucks, it's like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, that's not going to destroy my life. Like if I took out a $50,000 loan on a house that I don't know how to flip, um, so it was, it was very easy for me to stomach that. And when I saw the first deal happen, it was like, wow, like I didn't need to hire an agent for that. I didn't have to get a lender involved. Like I did all the closing stuff myself. Like this was not that hard. I sold the thing at Craigslist. It's like, I could just do this oh, really? a lot more times. Yeah, it was, uh, and, and I mean, back when I was doing that approach, my, my mindset was very much like, I don't want to get hurt. I want to spend mm. as little money as possible on this. And when you take that approach, you're going to be walking away from a lot of huge opportunities because you're not willing to take, take those risks. So, and this is how a lot of people start just to kind of prove the concept to, them, to themselves. But as they get further along, it becomes easier when, once you do prove the concept to go after bigger fish. And instead of putting down a few hundred bucks, maybe put down 10,000 bucks, maybe $20,000 and sell that thing for 40 or $50,000. Or maybe even what a lot of people are doing now is you don't just buy it, do nothing and sell it again. You buy it and then subdivide it and sell it mm -hmm. and like triple the value in the process. Or you change the zoning or you get some kind of site plan approved. You don't do the work, but you get the plan approved so that the next buyer is, you know, shovel ready. They can just walk right into it. Um, so you can add value to the land in those ways. That's really just paper value, but it's definitely value uh, because you're giving certainty to that that next buyer. That's interesting. And I, I've never really, we, I don't think we've ever really talked about land investing. I've looked into it just because, you know, when we met, I kind of looked into you, but I was like, I never, never thought much about it, but I, I want to bring up one thing you, you mentioned was proof of concept. You started mm -hmm. small and then obviously built, right? You started mm -hmm. with $300 deals. And in your mind, you're like, I lose $300. What's the big deal? Yeah. Um, my guess is the real estate taxes are pretty cheap on that, on that piece of land yeah. too. Yeah, for sure. So can people still find those deals today? Cause it sounds like that was what, uh, about 15 years ago, 12, 15. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a very good question. Cause it's, it's not the same environment today that it was back then. Uh, back then, not only was the economy seriously depressed and like nobody wanted to touch land with a 10 foot mm -hmm. pole. Um, and there was, literally nobody else doing this. Like I never saw competition. Like if I made a, you know, low ball offer, I was that person's only hope of selling it. And that's, that's not how it is today. There's a lot of other land investors out there now doing this. Uh, property values have gone way up, uh, vacant land. I don't know if it's still a hot commodity, but it has been a hot commodity over the past few years for sure. Like probably hotter than I've ever seen it. So basically the way that it's changed things is, um, for example, my first direct mail campaign was, I think, 300 or 500 postcards or something like that to get my first deal. Um, and that was pretty normal. Like, send out that many and you'll get a motivated seller who will sell it for dirt cheap uh, if you have the right kind of list. Nowadays, mm. it's more like maybe you start with 3,000, maybe 4,000, maybe more. And it depends a lot on, like what kinds of properties you're targeting, how much you're planning mm -hmm. to offer for these properties, what markets you're in. So there's a lot of variables that go into this. Um, but uh, it basically just takes more mail now to get the same number of deals. And so as a result, you know, it's, uh, if you're going to be spending that much more money, you want to make sure the juice is worth the squeeze. So you kind of go after bigger properties, maybe not ones that you buy for 300 bucks, maybe that you buy for 5,000 bucks, 
so that when this is all done, like the mail is paid for, you made some good money, that kind of thing. Sure. And, um, and also a lot of people are using things other than direct mail now. I know I, back when I started, direct mail was it. I mean, that was the only way to find deals. Now you've got people who are sending texts and doing cold calls and online ads and ringless voicemail and websites and tons of different stuff. So it's land investors or land flippers anyway, are going more the direction of where house wholesalers have been for years Whereas we never used to have to do that. So it's just getting a little bit more competitive from that uh, that standpoint. Yeah. So the life cycle is just caught up with wholesaling anything else at this point, which yeah. I'm sure we'll get into. But self-storage is is somewhat similar. It's a uh, life cycle was, you know, five, eight years ago it was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And now self-storage is, I don't know, a teenager, right? It, so it sounds yeah. like it's, it's somewhat similar. Yeah. So... You had, you've done land flipping for the past, we'll call it 15 years. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're still doing that today? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, okay. My vo- How, volume was pretty low. It's not nearly it? what it used to be, but um, it's mainly because I've just, I'm juggling a lot of things right now. So. How automated is that for you? Um, kind of depends on what, what initiatives I have going on. Um, so I set up a buying website, which is basically just a simple website that collects leads from people. And, um, I get leads through that. And the nice thing about that is that they're free leads. So I don't have to pay anything. And they kind of come in on autopilot. But the downside is I don't really get to pick uh, very uh, uh, Mm. efficiently or effectively. I don't really get to pick what markets they're coming from. They just kind of happen. And the downside of that is when you don't really know the market, it takes a lot more time and guesswork to figure out what is this property worth? You know, I've I've not worked here before. So that makes it a little bit more cumbersome. but, uh, but yeah, probably like a couple times a year, I'll put together a good direct mail campaign and send it to a market that I think would be a good one to buy in. And, um, so yeah, it's on average, I'm probably doing like five or six deals a year for land. Okay. So, yeah. so if someone wanted, here's a question that just popped in my head. If someone wanted to, I guess, look to quit their nine to five and they're looking at real estate investing or just something else. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend land flipping or um, wholesaling houses first? Because to me, that's kind of an entry point in the real estate investing. Yeah. Uh, land flipping all the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. That's probably no surprise, but I don't just, I mean, I do have my biases because I've been doing it for a long time and that's what I know the most about. But this is a very, very common discussion I have with a lot of former household sailors who are now land flippers. And mm. they tell me that land flipping is a lot simpler and they make way more money from land flipping. Um, I, I don't really know anybody who has tried both and they're like, I hated land flipping. It didn't make as much money. I love house, uh, household selling. I said, maybe those people are out there, but those aren't the conversations that I hear when I'm talking to them about that. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of this just depends on, um, I, I do think house flippers inherently, they have to be much better at marketing because it's so much more competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas land, I think it's 94% of all the land in the U S is not developed, which means the other 6% wow. is what household sailors have to pick from. And an even smaller percent of that is actually houses. So there's just way more land and a lot fewer land investors. Um, so, and, and, you know, even looking at land that, the margins are just as good, if not better, especially if you start getting into subdividing and that kind of thing. And when you buy a vacant land property, it is so much simpler than a house. Like you don't need to visit the thing. You don't have to get inside it. You don't have to like kick people out. Nothing's falling apart. Nothing's going to get stolen or destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's just land. And everything I need to know about that land, I can find out from this office here. I don't have to go anywhere. I can get on Google Earth. I can find a local photographer to swing by and get some pictures for me. Uh, if I really am spending a ton of money and I want to get some wetland studies and that kind of thing, I can do that. I can get a surveyor out there, but like, I don't have to go anywhere. It's all manageable from my computer. And, um, I mean, really what you're buying and selling is paper, uh, Mm -hmm. deeds and stuff. Um, it's just that the asset happens to be real estate in the form of land. This exact same thing could work just as well. If you were doing this with cars or jewelry, 
But those things would be harder because I would have to hold inventory of that stuff somewhere. Whereas with land, the land just stays where it is and I'm shuffling deeds around and that kind of thing. Okay, so this all sounds great. So my question is, it sounds like you said you do five to six of these land deals a year. Mm -hmm. Why not keep going? Why are you doing, and we'll get into other things that you're doing and have done, um, but why not just keep going full speed with that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Two reasons. First of all, uh, RE Tipster, that's probably what I spend, what is it, 75, 80% of my weekly time doing I love Which it. is, yeah, explain RE yeah. Tipster. Yeah, so RE Tipster is a website I started in 2012. And back when I started it, I had no idea I would have as much fun with it as I do. But it started as a blog where I just took a lot of the hardest lessons I had learned in land and just started telling people, here, here's how I solve this problem. Sometimes I would make a video, but I would just very thoroughly explain how to nail that issue and um, it eventually morphed into a YouTube channel and a podcast. And I love this stuff. I really enjoy taking complicated, difficult things and distilling them down into really simple, bite-sized answers. And I do 99% of this for free. And I find really creative ways to monetize the website in a way that uh, doesn't make people feel like they're being sold to, like they're getting excessive value if they spend any money. And a lot of people like literally have made millions paying me nothing and learning a lot of this stuff from Ari Tipster. And, and I find that really rewarding. Sometimes I kind of kick myself. It's like, why didn't you make money from that set? <laughs> but, but like the truth is I love this stuff. I cannot wait to get started doing this work in the morning. And um, yeah. So, and honestly, like it, it makes me less money than land flipping would. But at mm. the end of the day, like on Monday morning, when I, Walk into my office and start working. I feel like a kid running through the gates of Disney World for the first time. And it's really hard to find things in life that are work, that are fun like that, that you can make money from. And land, I don't despise that business or anything, but it's not as fun to me as Ari Tipster is. And the thing with Ari Tipster is the only reason I have anything to say is because of my experience in land and self-storage, other areas of real estate, So the reason I keep doing land is to stay relevant and stay up to speed and aware of what's going on and where the market is going, how it's changed and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I always want to make money from the land deals I do. That used to be the only motivation. Now it's kind of like, yeah, let's let's do that too. But really what we're doing here in this land deal is we're learning lessons. Like Mm -hmm. what is a relevant lesson from this deal? What's something hard about this? Where did things go sideways or what unexpected happened? What did you learn? How can you deliver that value to the RE Tipster audience? So, and uh, the other thing about land is that what it really is, is a hamster wheel. It's a hamster wheel that pays very, Mm. very well, but it's still a hamster wheel. And if you want to have land be your only source of income, like you're going to keep peddling or the money's not going to come in anymore. Um, And, that's uh, that's part of my motivation for getting into self-storage. And also with RE Tipster, it's RE Tipster is a bit of a hamster wheel too, but it's not not in the same way that land is. Like I, I'm making money from content that I made five years ago that mm. still it's not a ton of money, but little trickles of income come in from that. So it's it's sort of passive-ish in nature. So I like that about it too. Yeah. That's all really interesting. Um, because I find and actually last episode uh, we did, uh, myself and another storage investor were talking about how the shiny object where you get to a certain point, you've built your business and it's going and you can almost step out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uh, my business. I could do that. It's just not going to grow as far as acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you were probably there. Well, for one, I guess land flipping, you probably can't bring someone else on to work for you. Because it sounds like it's such a simple, can you? So why didn't you do that? Well, I tried to a little bit, but um, I had two problems with that. One was I had a really hard time finding like really good quality people that would like care about it as much as I did. I'm sure every Mm -hmm. entrepreneur out there is familiar with this. So I struggled with that. But also I realized that as I would like hand things off to somebody else, like I was less... Uh, feeling that struggle on each deal. And like the lessons were harder to pull out of that. Whereas when I was doing it 
hands-on, I definitely got a lot less done. There's no doubt about that. But like, I'm feeling the pain. Like I'm feeling what every other beginner out there is feeling because it's me and I'm on the front lines. And um, in some ways I kind of hate that, but in other ways it's like, it's just hard to replicate that experience if I've got some team underneath me doing everything and I'm just kind of sitting up on my high horse watching what's going on. Um, and I think probably my bigger problem is that I'm just not that good at finding and managing talent. Like really that's more what's underneath the issue, but a little side benefit is like, I get to kind of feel the sting myself when things go wrong or, you know, if I learn some big aha moment or something like that, it's, it's me seeing that and why it's important. Yep. Well, I think, I think you're doing a good thing there because I think there are a lot of, I don't say a lot, you run into gurus who are teaching something and they're no longer doing that thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And they don't even have a team doing that thing anymore. They're just teaching. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people get turned off. So I think mm-hmm. that's one, a great business plan is you're, you're keeping, you know, your feet wet in the game. You're still learning. You're still active, yeah. even though it's, you know, considered part-time, you're still, you're still doing deals. Yeah. Um, yeah that's, so yeah, I think there's value in that. It's an interesting thing, man. I've, I've kind of struggled with that over the years. Like, how much do I need to be doing to have the right to tell anybody what I'm learning? You know, like, you know, I, I know plenty of people out there who will kind of tout, like I do 500 deals a year or I've done 15,000 deals and the stuff. And what I realized, it's like, you can do millions of deals in your one state, but that doesn't make you any smarter about where I'm at. Like mm-hmm. you still don't know everything. Like you can say really big numbers and vanity metrics, but like when it comes down to it, like there's a lot of market specific experience you have to know. Like in seller finance, for example, seller financing is a huge deal in the land business because mm. um, uh, loans can be harder to get from banks. Not impossible, but it it'll it'll help your property sell much faster, and you can create some recurring income if you're willing to offer seller financing. Um, but seller financing laws change a lot from state to state. So like, you can tell me exactly what to do in California and that's great for California. That has nothing to do with Michigan. I could learn something completely different over here. So just kind of understanding like the differences and, um, not claiming I know it all, but at least I can point out like what I'm showing you is the framework for where I live. You're going to want to investigate this, this, and this where you live. So go fill in those gaps and, that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, that, that whole issue of like how much experience is really necessary. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I'm, I'm certainly not the best and I've never claimed to be that. There's people much smarter than me out there. But uh, the funny thing is being the smartest, most experienced land investor or whatever investor, it doesn't make you a good teacher. And yeah. a lot of people don't even want to teach it. Like that's just not their interest. That's not what they enjoy. And so yep. I don't know. I'm just trying to do the best I can with what I know. Well, it sounds like that's what fulfills you, right? That's yeah. Ari Tipser. You're you're sure. teaching through that, and that's mm-hmm. what fulfills you. So that's probably a good segue into Ari Tipser is what you're doing land deals. Ari Tipser is what fulfills you and, and you know gets you up every day. Mm-hmm. I know you pivoted to self storage. Have you done, or are you doing anything else? What else is on your plate, or have you done before yeah, we get yeah. in storage? Because we will get there. Yeah. So this is like totally unrelated to real estate in any way, but there's a, there's a kid's story podcast I've been working on for a couple of years called the Storyland podcast. And that to date I've made $0 from it, but, mm. but it's gotten over a million downloads and lots of people really like it. And I, I, I've kind of been hesitating to like try to pull money on it out of it. Cause I feel like that'll make it less fun. I'd turn it into a job once I do that. But, um, I don't have a ton of time to do these, but I basically just make up little stories for my kids and I add music and sound effects to them. And I decided to make an actual podcast out of that. And like it has blown up. It's been an amazing thing to see how many people like it. It's like seriously awesome. Um, so, so, so yeah. how I, I do, and I don't want to cut you off, but how, cause I saw your post, I think it was a week or two weeks ago about that. Yeah. And I was like, what? I didn't even know we did that. <laughs> How has it blown up? Obviously, I'm not searching for kids' podcasts, but from what I can tell, you're you're definitely not pushing on Facebook or social media. Yeah. How yeah. did it blow up? Yeah, man. It's it's kind of a mystery to me too. I still don't really understand what happened, but <laughs> I so I had these recorded 
fully produced uh, audio stories. They're like seven to 10 minutes each. And the only reason I even thought to do this is because for Ari Tipster, I have access to these music libraries and sound effects lab- libraries when I make videos for Ari Tipster. And I, I always saw these sound effects things. I'm like, why would anybody want that? What's the point of that? But when I thought of these stories, it's like, I guess I could add sound effects to these stories. Like that would make sense. And I don't have to pay anything. It's all right there. So I had these, these stories and I put this podcast out there and this was of like June, 2021, I think. And hmm. it was getting maybe like eight downloads per episode from me and the three people I had told about it. <laughs> and it was like that for nine or 10 months. And then out of nowhere, I start getting these emails from Buzzsprout, the podcast host saying like, you just got 500 more downloads today. I was like, what? That's, that's probably a mistake. Then the next day it's like, you just got 500 more. I'm just like, what? What is going on? And so I start trying to figure out like, what is happening here? And I, I get on Spotify, I get an Apple podcast. I go to the, like the top charts to be like, did something happen? Like did I get promoted or something? And on the, in the kids and family category, Storyland is number 21 in the world for all the podcasts. Wow. And I was just like, are you kidding me? It was this amazing moment of like validation because admittedly, Somebody like me, a 40-year-old guy, just randomly making kids stories. It's kind of weird. What kind of weirdo does that? <laughs> and, and to see that, like, I didn't even tell anybody about it, but somehow the world found out and they love it. Like, it was just this awesome, like, I took this weird risk and it kind of paid off. Not in money, but, you know, in validation, I guess. So, but yeah, ever since that's happened, it's like, I feel like I got to monetize this somehow. I just don't know what to do. So I'm thinking about maybe making an illustrated uh, kid's book based on one of those stories or something just to see if it sells. We'll see. Yeah. That's insane. So you think just, I mean, obviously it's a good product, right? That's one. And you know, there's power just in having a good product. Mm -hmm. Is there maybe less podcasts and somehow a few people start hitting it and it just kind of grew day by day, but it sounds like it was somewhat overnight. Yeah. It's a good question. I, I, it did sort of feel overnight, although I guess it took about a year for this to happen. However it happened, I still don't know. But I think what it is, is because there's plenty of other kid story podcasts out there. Mm. Some of them are great, but a lot of them are terrible. Like they're just not good. And I, and I know this because I remember probably like four or five years ago, my wife had downloaded all these kids podcasts for a family trip we were going on and she made us all listen to them. And I was just like, oh my gosh, these are so bad. Like the stories are so dumb and like the voiceovers, like it's just bad, bad, bad. Like I can't believe anybody listens to this stuff, but there we were listening to it. And uh, that wasn't what made me start doing stories, but I just remembered that like the quality, the, uh, the standard is set pretty low in terms of what people will accept as a good enough story. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm the best by any stretch, but like, I care a lot about it. Like I want the story to be captivating. I want it to sound real and immersive like when I tell my kids the story, like I need them to be on the edge of their seats with their faces lighting up. And that's how I know, okay, you're onto something here. So yeah. it, it helps a lot to have kids of the same age that can kind of give me feedback and tell me if it's going somewhere or not. Yeah, for sure. Well, we need to find a way for you can, so you can make money off that. I know. So you've got two passion projects yeah. that are, that fulfill you. Um, I want to ask where are you getting, where are you getting all the money from? But um we don't have to, we don't have to go there. Yeah, um, but what's that? We can go there. Yep. Yeah, so we're, we're obviously you're doing some land deals, but yeah. How are you? Obviously our tipster sounds like you're making some money. Yeah. Um, but what's yep. your main income source? Yeah. Ari tipster is the main income source right now. It's probably like 80% of the income. And okay. of that, the cool thing about Ari tipster is that it's, it is a very well diversified source of income. Like it comes from, well over a hundred different places. A lot of that wow. is like very small streams of income from like affiliate stuff that we, we mostly, I, when I do reviews and stuff, like for example, the, the phone system that I use for my land business is open phone and it's fairly easy to use, but there weren't really any reviews out there of like, how does it work? How do you sign up? How do you set up your voicemail system? How do you set up ex- extensions? So I'll just make a video about that stuff. Like, hmm. here's what I use. 
Here's how you set it up. This is what I like and don't like about it. You don't have to use this, but if you do, here's an affiliate link. And uh, lots of people click through that because it's whether hmm. they use it or not, it's legitimately helpful to them to decide whether or not to use that. And if they do, how do I actually use it? Um, so stuff like that. That's one example of dozens of different examples where I, I'll make a video like that or make a blog post review and make a tiny little stream of income from each little affiliate link. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. I've seen you do that and I never never put two and two together. So yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and the cool thing is it's, I mean, there's obviously my audience and people that already know me, but even if they don't know me, say they're on YouTube searching for open phone and they find my thing and I teach them how to do it and they, so they don't even have to be in my audience. They just have to be interested in the thing that I'm teaching them about. And that's kind of where the passive-ish nature of it comes into play because, you know, I spent like a day or so making that video, but like the work is done and it's yeah. continuing to do its work out there. Um, so there's that kind of thing. We have a few courses that we sell and there's like YouTube ads and that kind of thing. We used mm -hmm. to have ads on RE Tipster, but we don't anymore. Um, but there, when you have an audience like that, there's lots of creative ways you can monetize it. And what I love about it, and I got a lot of this from Pat Flynn at smartpassiveincome.com and other people like him, there's a lot of ways to make money without actually selling people on anything. Cause I, I'm a terrible salesperson. I hate it. I'm just not good at it. And this allows me to make money, even though I'm not, I'm not trying to convince anybody to buy anything. I'm just saying, here's the thing I use. Here's why I use it. I'm not saying it's perfect, but hopefully you can see the value here. If you want to use it too, here's an affiliate link and that's it. And, yep. uh, you know, a lot of people don't do it, but a few people do. And when it reaches tens of thousands of people, you know, the numbers kind of work out. Yep. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. And I never, yeah, again, I've never put two and two together. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I will say you definitely have a reach. Um, I get, I think we've done what, two or three videos together. Mm -hmm. I get, in fact, I just had someone yesterday reach out from oh, yeah. a cool. video that, that you did, an interview that we did that was on your yeah, platform. I, I love um, those videos we made, man. You did a great yeah, job. You delivered it was a good time. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. But I always have people reaching out and, um, unfortunately I don't really have a true program to send them to, but I try to help them out best I can. And, yeah. but yeah, your reach is, is wide and no, that's awesome. So RE tipster, um, kids podcast, land yeah. flipping, uh, anything else before we dive into self storage? That's it. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I know you're, you're speaking too. You're speaking at more events, right? Yeah. You know, that's actually, that's not something I'm like actively pursuing. Like I don't okay. even necessarily want to do that, but I just yeah. kind of get tapped on the shoulder by people who want me to do it. And it's like, okay, I guess I'll prepare something for that. But yeah, uh, but yeah that, that's not like a separate career I'm going after. It just kind of happens. <laughs> not yet. Oh, not man. yet at least. Yeah. Um, all right. So you developed some self-storage. You're in Michigan. Yeah. Tell us, tell us what that looks like. Tell us the process leading up to that to start. Yeah. Yeah. So you actually had a lot to do with my ability to even think through this and get as far as I did. So we had our mastermind group, um, with, uh, you and Keith and Adrian, Adrian, that's right. Yeah. Um, sorry, Adrian, if you're listening to this, <laughs> um, but, uh, so we have that and I, I just learned so much from you and Keith about like the real practicals of like how it actually works. Like not, you know, from the context of a course, but just like, this is it. I have nothing to sell you. This is the good and the bad. This is how I found my deals. Like this is the hard parts about managing it. Um, just tons of little things I learned from that. And so after we did that, I sent out direct mail um, to every storage facility owner within a, an hour radius of where I lived. Mm. And um, that at the time, I think it was late 2020 or early 2021 and nothing. Uh, I got five calls back after I think a hundred mailers went out mm. and um, three of them were people that wanted to know if I had found any deals that I could pass along to them. <laughs> and two of them were people that wanted like twice as much as what their places were worth. So just like nothing. And honestly, like it was a time when self-storage was, you know, about to be doing really, really well. So it was just hard to find motivation out there. And so after doing that and realized this is not going to be as easy as I thought, um, I started to think about building, which I'd never intended to do. Um, 
and even looking back on it, like it, it's kind of a risky proposition. You know I mean? It takes yeah. like a couple of years to plan it out. Like things can change, like all kinds of things can go wrong in this process. But uh, I just kind of went step by step by step and we, we made it work. And it was, there we were looking back on it, like it wasn't that hard, but there were definitely some like tense moments and some roller coaster experiences were like, okay, this is awesome. And then, oh man, this is terrible. And then, okay, it's getting better. So yeah, a, a lot of stuff. I actually just before this call, I was finishing up the longest blog post I've ever written, uh, talking about my two year journey through figuring out how to do this. And it's got a bunch of videos where I documented every step of the construction process and different, um, unexpected challenges that came up. So yeah. So there's a lot, of, lot to be said. <laughs> Yeah, that'll be interesting to uh, to see, um, and I won't ask for all those details now because I don't want to spoil everything. Uh, but how did you find? Obviously, you, at some point you're like, "All right, I'm just going to develop." How did you find the market and the land? Yeah, so you know that whole your land guy, so it probably was easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I actually I found a uh, a just a listing on the MLS that was not like way below market value like it normally would be, but. I could just tell like with the location, it's really good. The competition isn't really there around it. Like there's sufficient demand and all this stuff, like the uh, square feet per capita ratio is where it should be. Mm -hmm. And I kind of understood the pricing of the other places around. And I um, had a pretty good idea for how full they were just kind of doing that basic research. And um, I saw this land there and it's like, for what it is, like that's, you know, not an amazing deal, but like if I develop this thing and if I change the zoning, cause it was zoned residential, if I can change it to commercial, like that changes things. This becomes a really good deal. And, um, so that was what I did. I just bought it at, uh, at market value. And then I got it rezoned, which was not that hard. It took some time, but, uh, the township where it was, was rural and they didn't throw up a whole lot of obstacles to it. And probably the hardest thing for me in the beginning was this idea of, I've got to spend tens of thousands of dollars to get it rezoned and get these site plans put mm -hmm. together. And like, they could say no. Like I could easily flush $50,000 down the drain here. And uh, luckily that did not happen. And there's plenty of things you can do in this process to make sure that doesn't happen. Like if there's a problem on the horizon, you can see it long before you get to it. Mm. But still like that's a risk in development. And, and even once you do get it all approved, Prices can change while you're building it and contractors can flake out on you and all kinds of weird, weird stuff uh, came up. Like the steel prices went way up and there was a shortage of the concrete mixture that we needed. I mean, just tons of weird things that we never could have known about, but we got through it. So before you got in contract on that land, how did you value the land and the storage facility? Did you yeah. go out and get multiple quotes for the buildings? Um, did you have someone come up with plans? How did that go? Yeah, that was actually my biggest blind spot in this process. I had no idea how to figure out what is this thing going to cost to build? I, from my banking days, when I had financed a few storage facilities, I could remember, you know, approximate prices that they were selling for back then, um, you know, based on certain sizes. And I did have a general contractor I was talking to who most of his experience was with building Still able to kind of give me a, uh, he called it a uh, giggle and grin number where it's like, this isn't really real, but it's just a wild guess based on what you're mm -hmm. telling me. And, um, and I forget, I forget what that number was. I feel it was like, a, I was like a million or something like that for what I was telling him. Um, but then what I did was I found some, uh, some self-storage consultants who specialized in what I was doing in terms of like, you know, when should you build one or not build one? Like, how do you know what to do? And they were a huge help just because I knew almost nothing about this stuff. And they were able to tell me, like, for example, one of their common recommendations is like, don't even think about building anything unless you're going to bring 50,000 square feet to the market. And that that is not what I was doing. I was doing yeah. maybe a quarter of that was my plan. And so I was like, well, I'm not doing that because this is my first time doing this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to go $5 million in debt and screw this all up. So, so I did 27 ish thousand square feet and, uh, you know, they kind of helped me figure out, okay, here's how you could lay it out. Like, here's how you figure out the costs. Here's, we can go for a good feasibility study. 
Um, and there were actually a lot of help in talking to the bank because there were some questions the bank had that I didn't necessarily know. And when they saw I had, I had these consultants next to me, mm-hmm. they were able to give the bank a lot of uh, assurance and that kind of thing. And even in like putting together the general contractor with the architect and the civil engineer, I kind of did it wrong where I, I found a bunch of different people that didn't know each other and I brought them all together. If I could do this over again, I would just start with my general contractor and say, who do you think I should use? Like, who's your civil engineer? Who's your architect? Let's use those guys. Cause then it's, they're all kind of flow under him. And I can just point to my contractor and say, why is this late? Tell me what's going on. But the way I did it, bringing all these unrelated parties together, I had like, I want to say herd cats, but sort of in that, like, you know, I just had to, it was kind of convoluted in terms of getting them all to communicate and like show up and do what they said they were going to do. And they were pointing fingers at each other for different things. And that was kind of annoying, but um, yeah, but, but those consultants were very helpful just in terms of answering a lot of questions I had that I just didn't know what to do. Yeah. Were those free consultants or paid? No, they were paid. Paid. Okay. Yeah. So you made the right, well, and I know you reached out to people before that. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I remember us having conversations and I'm like, and I'm sure I probably didn't have much to offer cause I, I've never developed. And to me, that's a, a scary territory. Yeah. Um, just cause I like cash flowing day one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a huge equity boom on the other side. If you know, yeah. whatever you want to do, whether you want to refinance or, so, or sell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously you made a great move by finding experts in the industry and started learning the process. So how, so you have 20 some, 27 some thousand square feet right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's 170 um, of those cold storage units, then 95 parking spaces. Okay. Um, so how long, how long was the entire process? Yeah. So it. so we started taking trees down in August of 2022 and then the actual like like certificate of occupancy was about a year later in August okay. of 2023. Okay. So year that's really, that's not that bad. I yeah. would, I would probably say that's probably either average or pretty fast from your experience. Yeah. What, what would you say? Well, um, so originally my GC was thinking we would be done in December of 2022, which was like hmm. very fast. That's like a yeah. lightning speed. <laughs> um, that was definitely not the case. And, there were a few different things going on. So um, <laughs> kind of going back to things you learn from experience. So I waited a little too long to start looking for financing. And even when I did find a banker, like they were super slow at getting back to me. They wasted like two months just like mm. doing nothing. Um, and so once they approved me, I kind of fired them and went to a different bank and said, look, bank number one approved me. Can you approve me too? And then they did it in like two weeks. Wow. So I worked work with a different bank, but it wasted a lot of time. And there, there were different things I could have been doing in tandem with each other that I, I was waiting for step one to be done before I took mm-hmm. step two. Um, so that wasted some time, but also like in this process, we, I chose to move two power poles that were on the property that were kind of in the way, like there, we had a, a drive lane in the parking lot and it was like sitting right in the middle of that. And that took like five months for the power company to show up and do their job and even when they were done, there were still two other lines on the old poles that had to be moved by two other parties before we could take them down. So we just chewed up tons of time and money. Mm. And like in hindsight, I probably would have just left those poles where they were, like just work around them, you know, yeah. kind of save myself 23,000 bucks and a lot of time. Um, so it could have gone faster, but there were a lot of things I didn't know I was doing and wasted time. Yeah, but you don't, well, one, if you do de- develop again or even buy an existing, like you have so much experience now yeah, yeah, um, for sure. that you can build off of. So Definitely. two, do you think you'll ever develop again? Yeah, I've actually um, not made offers, but I've looked pretty closely at two sites just in the past month here. So I, I think I probably will at some point, but okay. the, the market has changed a lot since yep. 2021 when I first started looking at this. Um, I don't know what you've seen, but I've, I've heard that like the volume of people searching for storage units near me has dropped like 40% from where it was last year. So if that's even for rentals. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's even remotely true, it's like, I don't know if I just want to 
go gung ho building stuff all over the place if it's not really going to fill up that quick. Um, so I, I think it's it's still totally feasible. You just got to be pretty careful about like, is there really demand for this? Yeah. And um, and also looking at things like, you know, twelve by fifty RV storage units. What we were mm-hmm. talking about before we started recording here. Where it's like, I think that's a viable thing too, but I just don't know enough about it. And I don't know a good feasibility study person that I would trust to provide real data because there's no facilities like that really in my area. So like there are no real comps to work with. You can guess about it, but like it's kind of an untested thing where I'm at, but I'm sure there's demand for it. I just wouldn't want to spend a million bucks and screw it all up and do it wrong. Yep. Yep. But yeah, I I probably will build something, but I I don't know when or what what shape that's going to take. Yeah, I think you made a good point of we don't really know where the market is right now as far as rental. I mean, rentals are definitely down in self-storage. Um, in my mind, it's probably if you can find a market that has great demand right now, it's probably mm-hmm. a good market to build in because rentals are down right now. And one main factor is because people aren't moving right now because of mm-hmm. interest rates are high. Yeah. Um, but we don't have people crunched to where they have to downsize yet. So people yeah. are just staying put. So people are, the people are using storage. It's less people moving and it's more people just with junk hoarders, yeah. whatever you want to call it. So you're taking out one of the, one of your, um, prospects or whatever that are people that are buying houses and moving, you're taking that out of your business mm-hmm. and it's, it's crunching everybody. Um, yeah. But I do think there's going to be a huge storage boom once interest rates come down. Because one, it's I, I not, not from my experience because I have not built, but I've heard that you cannot get a loan right now from a bank to build self-storage. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, you haven't heard that? Um, no. Again, I don't know if That's that, a problem. <laughs> yeah, that is a problem. But once lending starts to loosen up a little bit, mm-hmm. There's gonna. I know there's people sitting on sidelines waiting to build, and that's gonna oversaturate things too. Wait, why? Uh, I mean, that's a big statement to make. Is that like literally everybody, or like certain conditions you can't get it, or wh- why is that a problem? I've heard. I've heard friends. I've heard podcasts. I don't have firsthand experience. I now I will say I've had less banks in the past. We'll call it six months that want to lend on storage. So mm-hmm. a couple banks that I've used before, years prior said no we're not really lending on self storage right now hmm. oh. not even not even talking building just self storage in general uh, but yeah i've heard now if you've got a great relationship uh, my guess is you could probably go back to the same bank and get a loan to develop right now mm-hmm. um, but if you're a new developer like that's just i've heard experienced developers have problems get really loans weird, man, I, i've uh, i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off we're getting, no so you're good yeah cuz i had I mean, this is probably totally unrelated, but in the land business, I've heard stories of people who are, they have a note for a piece of vacant land that they have sold, and the bank is using that note as their collateral, which is kind of crazy, because a lot of banks yeah. won't even use the land itself as the collateral, but to use a note for the land as a collateral, it made yeah. me think like, wow, banks are getting desperate, like they're looking for ways to, like they got to find something to make money. So it's right yeah. that they'd be willing to do that, but yet self-storage is too scary for them. Again, probably yeah. two separate things, but it's weird. Well, and it's it's probably market-specific too, right? Yeah, I'm sure it is. I, you know, I, and the podcast that I heard, I, I know they were, some of the developers are in, in larger metropolitan, metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. Um, some people I've talked to, it's more Southern, probably smaller areas. I don't know. Every, every yeah. area is different. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, if you want to if you want to develop, you can make it happen for sure. There's private money out there. There's there's banks that'll lend. Mm-hmm. Um, so give us before I get into your you know your typical podcast questions here. Give us a takeaway from developing um, that you, you just want to share. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's it's also like site specific. Like there were certain weird quirks of the site that I had that uh, I would probably handle differently. But yeah, I mean, like one of the big lessons I learned was like, for example, my civil engineer or my architectural engineer or my structural engineer, like just because they're wearing that hat as the expert in that area doesn't mean that they know everything or that they see Mm. all the issues. Like they will miss stuff all day long. And that was something I was really surprised by. Like, like for example, where we put the driveway, um, you know, the, 
the place that was chosen made no sense initially. And like, nobody caught it. Like of the seven people on my team, nobody was like, Hey, let's move it over here. Like I had to be the guy to catch it. And mm. it ended up saving us like $200,000 to do that. Wow. And I was just like, wow, really? Like I'm the guy who's never done this before. He knows nothing about this. That's the guy that ends up catching this. It's just, so I guess it made me, um, to put it, uh, bleakly, <laughs> don't trust people. <laughs> yeah. Like, like just, uh, and don't assume that they're competent or that they care. Not not saying that everybody's bad, but you know, you kind of have to be your own advocate, I guess. And then also, um, I mean, this is probably kind of obvious, but just the importance of a good general contractor and like get them involved as soon as possible and use their resources as much as you can. Cause I I kind of did that backwards where I had a bunch of, you know, uh wheels turning and then I brought him into the mix and kind of made him catch up. And um I feel like that came back to bite us a few times where it's like, if he had been there earlier, he could have influenced the direction of things and brought the right people into the mix. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. One of just keeping, well, GCs are one thing, but keeping your hand on, on the steering wheel, uh, yeah. it's your project. No one's going to care about it as much as you same with your business. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you got to, you have to trust people to a certain extent, but big, big decisions like, you've got to be a part of them. Yeah. Um, I'm sure those people, and I've, I did, I will say, I did try to develop about, uh, we're probably 18 months ago. It took a year to get an answer. And the answer was no. <laughs> yeah. um, but a lot of incompetency, like mm-hmm. across the board with the city, uh, architect, engineer, contractors, everything. So yeah, mm-hmm. you just, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask, how are you, f- uh, how have you been filling up and as far as percentage wise, where are you at and how are you filling up as far as uh, marketing wise? Yeah. Yeah. Actually that um, something I'll explain. This was sort of an unexpected surprise. So when I was about halfway through with construction, um, I got connected with a local competitor there in the town where this property is. And they run two pretty well-respected, you know, well-run facilities. And he's like, can I just like buy you out right now? Like right where you are. I just buy it. I'll finish the construction and I'll run the whole thing. And I was like, man, like appreciate the offer, but like, I, I kind of want to try this. I don't just want to cut and run. Like I want to at least give this a shot before I decide I want to sell it. He's like, okay, well, what if, what if we partner with you? Like, what if we put in 25% and I'll manage it for you along with my other facilities? I already have the marketing machine and all the people in place. I'll just add another facility to the mix and then you can collect 75% of the cash after that. And we'll wow. pay you a developer fee. Wow. And I was like, that sounds awesome, actually. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> and I and I had met with him a couple of times and got to tour his facilities and saw like this guy, he knows what he's doing. Like he's not mm-hmm. just some moron who started this yesterday. And um, it's been awesome working with him. Like he's, I get along with him really well and I've learned a lot from him. And like, honestly, like I should have had him in the mix before I even started this. Like, when I think about managing this myself, I'm sure I could do it, but like, man, I don't have time for that. Like I've got so many other things going on and with him, like he just handles it and he does it well and I can give him input when I want to, but for the most part, like I can just kind of trust that it's happening. So, so that's been uh, a nice thing because I don't have to worry about management as much, but um, so he reports to me every you know few weeks just to let me know how our, uh, how the lease up is going. I believe we've got like 55 units uh, filled. This was as of two weeks ago um, of the 170. Yeah. So I don't know what percentage that is, but it's not breaking even yet, but it's been open since, you know, like summer of this year. And we're in like the slowest part of the year now. So I'm sure it'll probably be another year or so until we're at that point. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, it's happening. That's good. That's really good. Do you know, do you have any idea what kind of specials he's running? Yeah. So it is the first month is half off and then okay. it goes to the normal price. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Um, that? Is, that, is that the right way to do it or how would you handle it? It's all over the place. I yeah. it's throw whatever, throw it against the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried half off first month. I've tried, I take that back half off first full month. Um, Cause you think about it and sometimes you have to explain it to customers and this is where, having a call center is harder to do because mm-hmm. um, they're not going to explain it. But let's say you rent a unit on the 15th. You're already missing two weeks and you get half off as a renter that month. Mm-hmm. 
you'd rather get half off the first full month, which is the month after. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a better deal for them. And if the our call center reps sell it correctly, it makes the customer even happier. Um, yeah. But we'll do that, and then we'll do $1 first full month, too. Mm-hmm. Other than that, yeah, it's just throwing stuff against the wall, Google ads, Facebook ads. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, bandit signs that we'll put out, too. Cool. So Nice. So let's get to two questions here. What uh, what one trait makes you successful in business and life? If you can boil it down to one. Hmm. You know, I'm a, are you familiar with the, uh, the DISC assessment, the yep. D-I-S-C? Yep. So when I was in college, I took this thing and I found that I was a very strong S, which basically makes you a really good employee. Mm-hmm. which I really did not like that. I was really disappointed <laughs> when I saw that because everybody else is like a strong D, like I have a, I'm a good visionary. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, seriously, like I'm just going to be a, you know, factory worker and that's what I get to do. <laughs> so I was really disappointed in that, but I actually, it's a huge strength uh, in that. Well, it's a strength and a weakness. So true to the score, like I'm not a good visionary. Like there's a lot of big direction things that I just can't do. Like even with Ari Tipster, like, there's a lot of cool places it could go, but I just am terrible at thinking of what that could be. I, what I'm really good at is just like putting my head down and plugging away, like getting yeah. this stuff done and doing a really good job at it. So like, if you give me a job to do, I'm going to do awesome at it, but to come up with where should we go? That's where I struggle. So it's one of those things where like, what gets you, what got you here won't get you there. So what got me here is my ability to really execute and do really good work. But I find myself kind of like, like uh, treading water a little bit. Like, okay, now what? Like, what's the next thing? So I almost need like to hire an employee who can tell me what to do. And then I can yeah. work for that. <laughs> or business coach. Yeah, maybe. I know one. He was on oh, yeah. uh, what? Two or three shows ago. Oh, um, there we go. So your, your, your one trait is that you're a grinder. Yeah. Yeah. Were you looking for a second one too? No. Well, no. My other question is, uh, what do you do better than anybody else? Well, I don't know if I'm better than anybody else. There's other people who are really good at this, but... um, There's always going to be someone better, but majority of people... Yeah. I think I'm good at getting down to the real issues, like um, asking the real important questions that actually can change everything if you can think enough to go there. Like I get this on uh, our podcast a lot. I can't tell you how many times people tell me like, I was, I wanted you to ask this question and then you asked the question and I was so glad you asked it. So like, it's very easy to ask very boilerplate general questions and the person gives the answer and then you move on. But you have to really care about the answer in order to ask the next question that drills a step or two deeper And uh, a lot of times when you do that, like it'll uncover big assumptions that the person is making or that everybody's making that it's like, wait, if that assumption is wrong, this all falls apart. And now you got to rethink this, that kind of thing. So just kind of poking and prodding and understanding like what's really happening here? How do we make this a really firm foundation so we don't move forward without really understanding what's going on behind the scenes? Yep. No, I agree with that. You do ask very good questions and then leading questions and trying to get to the to the root of it. Yeah, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. So before we go here and you've provided a ton of information here, a ton of great content and you have more, obviously at RE tipster, but where can people find you plug whatever you've got for the, uh, sure. you know, the thousands of people that are, that are listening. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, so RE tipster, not REI tipster, but RE tipster, uh, you can find retipster.com. If you go on any social media platform, just look for retipster and you'll find something there. Um, if you're into land investing, uh, you can go to landflippinglifecycle.com. That's a really detailed blog post I put together about how that whole business works. Um, if you want to check out my video series I made about my self-storage journey, I spent tons of time making this thing. Um, and I'd love to get more than a couple hundred views on these things, <laughs> but, uh, you can go to, I guess if you go to my YouTube channel, RE Tipster and go to the playlist, you can find it right there at the top. And, um, 
Yeah, happy to talk to anybody. If you want to reach out on Facebook or the contact page on aritipster.com, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Yeah, you're definitely a giving person. And um, I know, you know, just my real estate investing careers changed through our re- relationship. So yeah. appreciate everything you're doing and putting out there. Yeah, man, and uh, yeah, and uh, that's all we got today. But appreciate everybody listening. Till next time. Thanks for following, subscribing, and listening to this episode of the Do More podcast hosted by John Farling. To learn more or ask questions, go to l4investing.com. Dot com.